when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Election Countdown, your regular update on the UK's impending general election from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. As you might have guessed, our regular politics podcast has become the election countdown for the next few weeks as we guide you through the highs, lows and canters of the campaign. In this episode, we'll be dissecting a week of campaigning for the Tories with Boris Johnson's first major speech and some policy announcements in the Midlands, Labour's free broadband giveaway, the Liberal Democrats' efforts to make headway on the ground and the big dilemmas facing the Brexit party. I'm delighted to be joined by our chief political correspondent, Jim Picard, columnist Robert Shrimsley, deputy opinion editor Miranda Green and political correspondent Laura Hughes. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of the FT Election Countdown, then do subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. We also appreciate a positive review. The UK's election campaign ended its first full week on the ground on a bit of a dry note. The polls show the Conservatives are still ahead on course for a relatively comfortable majority. Boris Johnson went to Coventry this week to announce a whole load of green policies in front of some electric cars, but has found himself on the back foot over his response to flooding in different parts of the country. Meanwhile, the Tories found themselves facing off the Brexit party. Nigel Farage initially boosted Boris Johnson's hopes of a majority by standing down his candidates in Tory-facing seats. But despite rumours of offers of gongs and jobs from Number 10, he did not stand down in Labour-facing marginals, leading to a lot of bad blood between the two parties. So, Robert Shimshi, let's begin with the Tories. How do you think the week has gone from them in the campaign? It's funny, you know, as you were doing your preamble just now and you talked about Boris Johnson's first big speech of the campaign, I suddenly froze and thought, oh, my God, what did he say in that first big speech of the campaign? And I'm meant to be paying attention. The Conservative campaign thus far has sort of washed over us in large measure. The highlights, what are they? You're right, there was the electric cars. I do remember that bit. I remember Boris with a mop sloshing dirty water around. I remember that funny video he did from Central Office, that rather personalised one, which people have derided, but I actually thought was probably quite clever. And the main event has been the Brexit party in terms of what the Conservatives have been about this week. They have got some leeway from the Brexit party and that's the single biggest win. It struck me watching this campaign from the Conservative point of view so far that there are, as often in elections, two campaigns going on. There is the one that's being conducted for the media, which is awash with policy announcements here and battle buses being unveiled and Boris is here and Boris is there and it makes for the television news. And there's the stuff that's going on rather more cleverly and rather more strategically and being targeted. For example, the small towns initiative that he unveiled and the 
talk this week about reopening some of the railway lines, acts by beaching. How old do you have to be, by the way, before the word beaching means anything to you? It means something um, to me, but um, I do love trains. And, and when you looked, I saw a map of the kind of rail lines that might be reactivated, and they're smack bang everywhere that the Conservative Party is targeting in Labour marginals. And so it's quite skillful use of, we'll give you back your train line. So I think the Conservative campaign is actually going OK. It's just not the one that we're watching. I think that's right, Miranda Green, because there was a bit of polling done this week to ask the British population about what election issues they had heard about this week. And the vast majority had heard absolutely nothing. And the only thing that had gone any way of cutting through were Jacob Rees-Mogg's comments last week about Grenfell Tower. I think it's been a race between the three of us as to who could first mention that wonderful poll, which is my moment of I the campaign. I took presenter's prerogative so, there. Absolutely. You know, the idea that people have noticed precisely nothing about the election campaign so far as A, very reassuring about the great wisdom of the British public and B, shows you that a lot of this is kind of sound and fury. I do think, though, that one of the things that's been notable is that the number one issue on the news a lot of the week has been the floods and those floods are in areas that the Tory party is supposedly going to take off Labour. And when the Prime Minister turned up there, he did not get a warm reception. I don't think that's good for him because there's a sign of the bubble in which a lot of the campaign is being fought, as Robert rightly says. If there's too much of a contrast between that and people's real problems on the ground and a government that doesn't seem to be helping or relating, then you've got yourself a problem. For example, also, he said that he would be delighted to be going to the wrong county when he was going to visit a key target seat. That went down very badly in the local area. You know, Nottinghamshire is not the same as Derbyshire, I would just like to point out. You know, these are tiny little things, but if the brand image problem you've got with your party is already not being close to people, you need to do something about that. So that was my sort of main observation on week one. The other thing is the background of the NHS. Having an election in the winter is a massive risk if you've got a chronically underfunded National Health Service. And we did a great bunch of FT stats crunching, which showed that now it's in what's being called a perpetual winter crisis. So they're going to have to get on the front foot on the NHS. Interestingly, the Tory party is slightly ahead in recent Mm. months of Labour on the NHS, which I think is worth thinking about. Which is something that Matt Hancock, every single time he pops up, says, because this is an extraordinary thing that Labour have always been the part of the NHS and it's their campaign weapon they use in every single election. There's that private eye graphic that gets tweeted about the number of hours and days they've said to save the NHS here. But the Tories love the fact they're ahead for now. But as you said, that certainly could change. Yeah, every day Matt Hancock does a little video on Twitter of him going around the country. There was a marvellous one, I think it was yesterday, of him standing in devises in a field and saying, this is where we're going to build a fantastic new hospital. But what it actually was, here I am standing in a field where there isn't a hospital. It was very, very strange. I think Miranda made a really strong point, actually, on the floods. And one of the things that struck me was watching Boris Johnson in some of the flood areas. And he really wasn't very good with people. His shtick most of the time has been to turn up, be a celeb and enjoy people enjoying his presence. When he faces angry people shouting at him, why haven't you done more to save our homes? He wasn't very good. I was talking to a Tory official, I think it was yesterday, and he was raging about how badly they had been wrong-footed on the floods and blaming it on the fact that all of the special advisers had been moved out of the government departments to get into campaign mode and so weren't on top of the response, which I think is a bit of a stretch. But it's certainly true they didn't grasp this quickly enough in their campaign grid. Indeed. Now, I'm just going to briefly mention that speech, which I was sent to Coventry to go and see in the electric car factory. And it really symbolised this point you made, Robert, about him not dealing with 
events very well because the big news had been the floods. He'd spent a lot of time and had gone back there several times to speak to victims of the floods. And his host speech was meant to be about a green skills business revolution. And there was actually a lot of policy, except the policy was briefed and it wasn't mentioned at all by the Prime Minister in the speech. So the FT diligently went through the policy and went through it. And there's some substantial stuff there about making sure every home is within 30 miles of a car charging point, doubling the R&D budget in the UK spent to 18 billion, all this kind of stuff. But the speech that Boris gave was incredibly rambling. It talked about his oven-ready Brexit deal. It talked about Labour and John McDonnell and all the rest of it. But it just felt as if there wasn't really a central focus message here. And I don't know what the message the Tories have wanted to get across this week has been. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because all of those policies that you're describing, we'd probably all sign up to them, actually. But there's a structural issue, as we've discussed, with the Tory campaign, which is trying to sell a fresh start and national renewal, the other side of Brexit, when you're defending nearly a decade of Conservative-led government. And also, frankly, when we've got to get to the other side of Brexit. And I think the announcement that Tesla, for example, was going to site its factories in Germany, not here, it's really hard to say we'll be at the forefront of the electric car revolution when the international industry that's at the forefront of that revolution chooses not to come here. So, again, reality interrupts. And I think this also goes to the point of the traditional Tory approach, and this is where they're really a bit stuck. The traditional Tory approach to fighting the Labour Party, who will always be able to outspend it because they'll tax higher and borrow more, is to say their plans are fantasy, we're competent. But the Conservatives haven't looked very competent and it's a pretty hard sell at the moment, we're the party of competence. So what they're doing is somehow trying to be a bit of both. We're going to spend quite a lot. We've got lots and lots of great spending plans, but then just not as big as Labour's spending plans, but we're still really very competent. That's a much harder message. I totally totally agreed. Now, let's move on to the Brexit party, because that was the most significant thing for the Tories this week, that Nigel Farage has been under huge pressure. We talked about this in our little midweek update, which we're doing every week during the campaign, I should say, about whether he stands candidates or not. And he came out in Hartlepool on Monday and said, we're going to stand down candidates from all Tory held seats. And this was pressure from donors, people like Aaron Banks, who are very close to Nigel Farage, pro-Brexit newspapers like the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph saying, you've got to stand down, otherwise you're going to cost the election. And my view actually is that this is a much bigger announcement than was received because the Brexit party are now not a national political party. They are not going to get the airtime. They are not going to have the campaigning effort they would have had otherwise. And we've already seen that their polls have halved in a week. They've gone from 8% to 4%. Now, you could say that's because they've lost half their candidates. But I think it becomes a self-reinforcing thing and they're going to become a minor footnote in this campaign. Well, we'll wait and see what happens on the night because it's a foolhardy person who would predict the result again. I don't know why I predicted that. Well, look, here's the thing. I think it is, in a way, the end. I think it's sort of potentially Nigel Farage's last stand, this election campaign. He himself looks quite reluctant to be taking centre stage, oddly. Every time he's on the airwaves, he talks about exhaustion, which is a terrible thing for him to be talking about because it seems to me to be the message... He caused it. Yeah, exactly. He caused it. And also it seems to lead you to conclude get Brexit done, which would point voters to the Tory party again. It's this weird phenomenon of Brexiters not taking yes for an answer and not knowing when they've won, actually, and the split on the Leave side is part of that. Because number 10 under Dominic Cummings really don't want to be seen to have anything to do with him. 
in a way, this is really significant because it might be the end of a long story of Nigel Farage's spooky ability to terrify the Tory party. And that will be a chapter closing in British politics, potentially. But I think they can still do a lot of damage on the night by splitting votes all over the place. Of course. Now, one part of this story, Robert, has been is how much of this was a pact versus, as Mr Farage called it, a unilateral pact on this. Mm-hmm. That he made the decision, I think, of his own accord to stand out in Tory seats and he was hoping for some reciprocal action from the Conservatives. And he's claimed that people have been offered peerages, jobs in the government, all the rest of it. Do you buy much into that? Do you think there was a sort of dark arts operation by the Tories to get him to stand down everywhere, which he then ultimately refused? I think it's quite hard to look at Nigel Farage's demeanour over the last couple of days and think this was a deal that he was happy with. So I don't buy that there's been a really cunning pact here that they're just not telling everybody about. I think that all kinds of people within the Conservative tent were trying to find ways to get him to stand down, reaching towards Downing Street and the leadership of the party to say, could you do this? Could you say that? And it was significant that Boris Johnson put out this strange little video on Sunday night where he committed himself to not extending the implementation period should his deal go through and he not have a free trade deal in time, which is what Nigel Farage bit on. So word got back to Downing Street that if you say this and if you say that, that might do it. And he did. And I think the fact that the Conservatives are trying to pick off odd people with baubles and peerages and who knows what afterwards suggests even more strongly that there was no real pact here because otherwise they wouldn't be having to pick people off. And I think, as Miranda was saying, what Farage has done by not standing down in Labour seats is not give the Conservatives what they wanted. I do think that the signal he has sent to Brexit Party voters is to vote Conservative, and I do think they will fade away during the campaign. But the truth is, as Miranda and I were talking about this the other day, you know, it is not in the gift of party leaders to just hand their voters over mm-hmm. to another party. Some of those people will not want to vote Conservative. So maybe they'll still vote Brexit Party, maybe they'll go back to the Labour Party, or maybe they just won't turn up. So I think it's probably too early to call the scale of the benefit. But I, like you, think this was a major moment for the Conservative Party. And I do think the Farage impact will begin to wane. And just another reason I want to say why I take the maximalist view on the impact of this as well is because when Nigel Farage stood up in Hartlepool to talk about Brexit, he crossed two Rubicons he hadn't before. One is, I want Boris Johnson to be Prime Minister. And second of all, Boris Johnson's Brexit deal is a good deal. So every time he's now speaking and we hear from him during the campaign, yes, there'll be some you know rude words about the Tories and trying to buy them off, but fundamentally he is saying to voters, don't vote Labour, but do vote Conservative if you can. And the fact is, the only people attacking Boris Johnson's Brexit deal now are going to be Labour and the Lib Dems, not the Brexit party. And I think that does help. It will help. And it will help the Tory party keep some of those seats in Scotland. Absolutely. But, you know, the great unanswered question here, though, comes back to... Boris Johnson has got to gain seats because he's got to re-establish a majority in the House of Commons. So it's about way more than hanging on to the seats the Tories hold. And that's where the task is way more difficult because of the Brexit Party maintaining its candidates in those other Labour-held seats. Robert uh, disagrees. Uh, no, no, I was going to jump into something else, but I want you to finish your point first. I finished. OK, well, that case I'll tell you. I was just going to say, the other thing that's helped the Tories this week is the nature of Farage's bad temper is very useful for the Conservatives who are on the Remain side, who are possibly veering towards the Lib Dems. And the one thing that would push them over the edge is a real pact, because he is toxic to those kind of people. And the Conservative share of the Remain vote is down, I think, in the last poll to around 18%. 18% to their party are, are Remain voters. And I think they don't want to lose any more. So a curmudgeonly angry 
disgruntled Farage is slightly helpful in persuading those voters that the Tories haven't gone full Brexit party. Coming back to your final point, Miranda, about this, about what the Tories need to do, because I think one thing that has become clear this week is that if the trajectory continues now, the Tories are now very far ahead. They're above 40% and they're getting back to where they were at the beginning of the last general election campaign, even though they're that far ahead. The posters and people who look at this sort of thing think you're still talking about a comfortable but not a huge Tory majority. And he's really got a hit. 330 feels to me like it's the magic number because if he gets below that, governing is very difficult, passing the Brexit deal is very difficult in itself but it does look as if if nothing fundamentally changes which it probably will but if nothing fundamentally changes then that's the kind of result we're looking at a small Tory majority at the moment well he better hope so because you know he's burnt his boats with the DUP who are under attack from a kind of Romania alliance in Northern Ireland themselves and he doesn't have any other coalition options. So they've really got to go for it, taking those seats. I think you're possibly being a bit too sanguine for the Conservatives at this stage. What we're also seeing in the polls at the moment is the Labour Party's beginning to squeeze the Lib Dem vote a little bit. Which is you know, bad for the Tories. Exactly. We're seeing the two big parties going up and the two smaller ones going down or staying flat. So, But there are still moderate Tories peeling absolutely. off to the Lib Dems. No, that's absolutely which true. Which is bad for them in the um, south of England. That's also absolutely true. You know, I mean, Labour look Party at David Gork, that's a huge signal. No, no, you're I think the Labour Party is getting his act together. I'm sure you're going to talk later on about the policy announcement on free broadband, but they're smart. They know how to run campaigns. They've got a pitch to voters. They're going to get more coverage. And you have to assume the Labour Party vote is going to go up. So although it is true that there is still that pathway to a Tory majority and it's still quite possible to see how it can happen, it remains quite possible to see him falling short still as the Labour Party begins to pick up support. Indeed, I'm not predicting that they're going to win that clear majority. I'm just seeing where things look at now. And we know that Isaac Levido, the chap who's running the Tory campaign, has told people at CCHQ there is a path to a majority, but it is a steep and very narrow one. Meanwhile, the Labour Party made waves this week by announcing a bold plan to nationalise parts of British Telecom and offer free broadband to parts of the country. Jeremy Corbyn spent a lot of time up in Scotland trying to rebuild the party's support there, but didn't seem to have too many fans on the ground. Liberal Democrats have been jetting out on their yellow banana campaign bus, with Joe Swinson trying to, again, make some impact and get her message across about remaining in the EU. Jim Picard, let's begin with Labour's broadband policy, which feels like the main thing they've done this week. They haven't yet fully decided their manifesto, but on Friday they announced this bold pledge to take parts of British Telecom back into public ownership, into a new entity called British Broadband, to offer free fibre broadband to lots of different parts of the country. Tell us what it's all about. Yeah, this is a very, very big Labour economic policy coming almost out of the blue, just on the eve, as you say, of their final meeting to deliberate their manifesto policy. As you would expect, investors in BT are not happy. The management of BT is not happy. The way this would work is that OpenReach would be, as you say, turned to something called British Broadband. OpenReach is the part that sets out the broadband infrastructure of the country. Exactly, exactly. The sort of the skeleton of that. The way this would work is that the value of that, depending on which analyst you talk to, is somewhere between 10 and £20 billion. So it would be nationalised, presumably a long way below that level. You know, if you look at Labour's plans for other nationalisations, none of them are at market value. There would then be £20 billion of investment made from borrowing. And then in addition to that, Labour says that the running costs of this new system would be met by a new £280 million a year tax on global multinational companies, which 
Some people have got the impression that this is a kind of tech tax. I want to be very sort of explicit here. It's not just a tax on tech companies. It's just that the Labour press release says big multinational companies like Amazon and Google. And because everyone hates them for not paying enough tax, that makes it sound more palatable. Now, what's interesting about this is we've got to this stage now where the list of nationalisations being proposed by Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell is getting incredibly long. It reminds me of that game I went shopping and I bought because it's so hard to actually remember. You've got Royal Mail, you've got the water companies, the railway companies, all the PFIs, you've got the national grid, and now you've got this as well. And there are going to be real questions over the actual feasibility of implementation. Laura Hughes, let's just talk about the politics of this for a moment, because obviously the economics, Jim touched on that, an awful lot of money here. But when that announcement came out and there was a push notification on my phone, it came with the BBC saying Labour Party announces it will nationalise BT and offer free broadband paid for by a tax on big tech companies. Now, as Jim said, that's a very simplistic way of putting it and it's not entirely accurate. But an awful lot of punters out there, particularly younger voters, will see that and think, great, free stuff. And and it'll be better broadband and it's going to penalise those big tech companies I don't really like anyway. So it's, again, a very populist kind of thing from Labour that speaks to the radical direction their campaign is going. Yeah, I mean, I got that BBC push notification last night and the first thing I thought was, wow, this is just the best political broadcasting the Labour Party could ever have hoped for. Very simple message that would have gone straight into people's phones and You're right, you know, in the same way that Labour's pledge to scrap tuition fees is very popular amongst young people, it will do well. And Boris Johnson, the Tory leader, was very quick off the mark to say that this was bonkers, this was unrealistic, this wasn't going to happen. But Labour are very good at putting these quite radical things out there. Of course, there is also this suggestion that they're not going to win, they're not going to have a majority government. And so some of these quite radical proposals might disappear or be watered down if they were forced to go and do some sort of coalition or confidence and supply agreement with some of the smaller parties. So, Jim, let's just look at the specifics like this. First of all, how would this improve broadband at the moment? Because my view on nationalisation versus privatisation is if you just replace a privately owned monopoly with a state owned monopoly, it doesn't necessarily make for a better service. Labour's point is going to pump all this extra money in. Boris Johnson has promised to pump lots of money into broadband infrastructure as well here. So I'm not quite sure how this by itself is simply going to make for better broadband. No, I mean, this is probably one more for broadband analysts rather than myself. But I think in basic terms, Boris Johnson has already promised to put in five billion quid. This is clearly more money. But when you listen to the BT chief executive on the radio this morning, he spoke to our colleague Nick Fieldies last night. He's making the point that they were already putting in tens and tens of billions of pounds of investment into this themselves. And his case being, you know, this is one of the reasons why BT's share price has already fallen from about five quid two years ago to about two pounds today. I think the other industry implication today, which will be writing a lot of analysis from the business end later today, is what happens to their rivals. Because if you're Sky Broadband or if you're the Virgin equivalent, if you're going to have a state monolith providing this stuff for free, are they just going to go out of business? And John McDonnell on the radio seemed to be suggesting, oh, well, you know, we can just sort of casually nationalise them as well if necessary. They can be part of British broadband. It all sounds very easy and simple in his mellifluous <laughs> tone. But one of the things that is quite striking about this whole thing, Laura, is that when you looked at the nationalisation and I think the last thing was water they announced before this, John McDonnell said, this is the limit of our ambition. We're not going to do any more. And then they've suddenly done more. And this speaks to the concern lots of people in the city and lots of voters have 
about Labour, which is the fact that they promised they're going to do these things. They're all fully costed. They're very straightforward to do. But then they come along and promise yet something else. And people will think, well, if they're going to do this now, what happens when they're actually in power? And if they had a majority government, then they wouldn't be restrained at all. And there's so much more they could do, be it currency controls or renegotiate the Bank of England's mandate for running the economy. All these things that are not in their manifesto. And in fact, their manifesto becomes a floor, not a ceiling for their ambitions. Yeah, I mean, I think BT had been assured a few weeks ago that this wasn't going to happen, that they weren't going to be hit. And it would have come as some pretty shocking news to them to find out that they are also part of Labour's plans to renationalise. The biggest concern then is that if they can go back on their word now, what would they do if they actually got into government? Because, of course, you can do what you like. You can leave what you've put out in your manifesto, you can build upon that. And if they did get a majority, which we do still think is very, very, very unlikely, there is no limit potentially to their ambition. But it's interesting that they are going for these very, very radical proposals as opposed to trying to be a bit more moderate. Some will say that they're just they're going to be scaring more people off with this. Why not just stick a bit more to the centre and try and win voters over? This sort of thing is really going to put off those that might have been tickling with the idea of voting Labour and now are just scared at how extreme this is. I mean, I think my answer to that question is, firstly, it's not talking about Brexit and the Corbyn leadership is desperate to get the subject off Brexit and onto other ground where they don't look so woolly and compromised. And I think... With this as well, it also fires up the base. It's the kind of thing that radical Corbynista Labour members are excited about. But I agree with what you were saying earlier about John McDonnell. Ever since the 2017 manifesto, he's been going around the City of London and boardrooms saying, literally, there are no tricks up my sleeve. And then he popped up a year ago with the Inclusive Ownership Fund, which FT readers will be very familiar with because it involves the seizure of about £300 billion worth of shares off big companies to be transferred from shareholders to workers. As to the question of what could they nationalise next, they might look at other stuff. And I did an interview with Kat Hobbs, who's the founder of something called We Own It, who I think came up with the water idea. She was heavily influential before the 2017 manifesto. And I said to her, would you like to, in an ideal world, nationalise things like airports and the defence industry? And she said, yeah, very much both of those. Well, we'll see what happens when Labour's manifesto comes up next week and we've got the crucial Clause 5 meeting on Saturday where they all get into a room and decide what's actually going to be in there and obviously things to look out for as well as the economy is going to be what happens on immigration given what Labour Party's Commons voted for and of course it's Brexit policy which will be the same tightrope it's gone to throughout this process so far. Laura, you've spent a lot of time with the Liberal Democrats on the campaign trail this week with particular Joe Swinson. And one thing that's been striking about their campaign so far is how centred it has been on her personality. Now, she's somebody who is relatively new party leader, doesn't have a national political reputation. Before she became Lib Dem leader, she was most notable for being a minister in the coalition government 2010 to 2015. But beyond that, she hasn't had much cut through and the party has made its whole thing about Joe Swinson's Liberal Democrats. What's your sense of how she's going down on the campaign trail? It's interesting that she's taken the Theresa May approach. That's very much what she did in the 2017 election when she put out these massive banners saying Theresa May's Conservative Party. That massively backfired. So it will be interesting to see if the message also backfires for Joe Swinson. I've had quite a mixed reaction to her. A lot of people don't know who she is, though, still, because we haven't quite got far enough. And that is why she is making such a big deal about getting into these TV debates, because for any Lib Dem leader, that really is the moment that people who don't follow politics every day sit back and 
think, oh, who's this new face, new woman? The reason why she's potentially struggling is that she has taken the party in a very different direction to that of Vince Cable in terms of coming down hard line on Brexit and promising to revoke Article 50 and stop Brexit in its tracks altogether. Under Vince Cable, it was just a call for a second referendum. And that is putting some people off because they feel that, yes, Brexit isn't great. They don't like it. They might be natural Lib Dem voters, but they are concerned about the democratic implications of not delivering this or not revoking Article 50 or revoking Brexit altogether through another public vote in the form of a second referendum. The reality, of course, is that the Lib Dems are unlikely to win a majority in the House of Commons. I don't think even the most sort of optimistic Lib Dem candidates would even really be promising or hoping for that. So the question then is, well, if you've taken this very hardline stance to just really emphasise that you are the party of Remain, will you then work with others to deliver a second referendum? And that's something Jo Swinson is saying that she won't do. So it's quite confusing for some Lib Dem members to know exactly what they're going to get if they do vote for their local Liberal Democrat MP. You know you're not going to get a revocation of Article 50. You actually can't guarantee that you're going to get a second referendum either if the party leader is refusing to do deals. And I spoke to Jo Swinson earlier and she said that she would rather go straight into a second general election than help put Jeremy Corbyn into Downing Street. The nuance of that, though, is could she work with a different Labour leader? And that will be the question that perhaps some Lib Dem voters will be asking themselves. She's not admitting that. Chukra Muna, one of the Lib Dem candidates, has suggested that potentially the party might go that way. I actually think if she was a bit more explicit on that, she could encourage Lib Dem voters to cast their ballots for her because they can do it in the knowledge that they might get a second referendum. Because this is one of the big things this election is really where Remain voters are going to go on this because... Labour's policy is let the people decide, Jim. They've essentially said, we know, even though the vast majority of people at the top of the party are Remainers, minus Jeremy Corbyn and a few others, but generally, Labour's a lot more Remainy now than it was in the last election. In the last election, it was running on delivering Brexit. But I've heard from several Lib Dem candidates in places like Richmond Park, for example, where they're trying to get away from, Laura was saying, this controversial policy on revoke and much more focus on, we'll give you a second referendum, which really, on Brexit, puts them into the same territory as Labour. Yeah, obviously Labour's position has moved substantially in the last two years and they've gone from being a Brexit party to being a party of either Brexit or not Brexit. They're just going to let the people decide, which is not a totally stupid place for them to be because it does sort of manage to knit together both their third of voters who would leave and the two-thirds who would remain. But does it please the membership? When you say they've become a Remain party, the membership's incredibly Remain and it has been a bone of contention inside the party and it's also in some ways made Jeremy Corbyn look a bit spineless and indecisive when actually he has this incredibly radical policy platform that we were talking about earlier. The million dollar question is going to be how many people in seats which are basically marginal binary choice between Labour and Tory where the Lib Dems clearly don't have a chance, how angry are these Remain voters about Brexit? Are they angry enough that they will do a protest vote for the Lib Dems to say we hate Brexit so much that we literally don't care who wins out of the Tories or Labour, and especially in Northern England, that could be the most crucial thing in this entire election. The thing I've been really struck by is how many people don't know how to vote because they are uncomfortable with Jeremy Corbyn and they don't like the anti-Semitism thing. They're a little bit uncomfortable with the hard line that the Lib Dems have taken and they don't like Brexit, so they can't go for Boris Johnson. There are a lot of very confused people out there and that's one of the more striking things. 
And it will really determine how much the parties are squeezed at the very end. Do Liberal Democrat voters actually decide at the very last minute that they're scared voting for Lib Dems gets you Labour and they're worried about their finances. And so they end up voting Tory, even though they hate Brexit. It's or, the, really or the other way around, scared that voting Lib Dem will get them Boris Johnson. Exactly. It, left it's really, really complicated for people. And I sympathise with a lot of those who don't know what to do. Indeed, and we have seen in the polls this week that the narrowing is already happening. This always happens in the final two weeks of the campaign when it becomes who do you want to be your next prime minister. But, you know, I talked to one Conservative candidate today who was very concerned about the Lib Dems in their patch and said that actually the threat of Corbyn is quite effective and they think that a lot of those Tory Remain votes, even though they're polling incredibly low, it's only about 17%, I think, of Tory Remainers are going to back the party again. You could see that increasing quite a lot. And if that does happen, and it means the Lib Dems won't make that many gains at all in this election. No, but it's striking how many Conservative Remainers are flirting with the Liberal Democrats, mm-hmm. having never voted for them before met a guy who's actually actively going out there with a big yellow rosette on his jacket because he is so angry about Brexit and angry at the direction the Conservative Party are taking. But just as a note of caution, don't forget, in the whole sort of first-past-the-post system, the Lib Dems are incredibly hampered. And we went to a presentation by Sir John Curtis, the master of polling, and he said that something along the lines of he'd be surprised if they get many more than 20 seats. That does seem likely, given the fact as it will get squeezed. Just finally, Jim, to sum up where Labour is this week, how do you think the campaign's gone for them? Next week is going to be a very big one. It's not just the manifesto, it's the first TV debate where Boris Johnson will go head-to-head with Jeremy Corbyn. Do you think they're pleased with how it's going, even though they've not had that rocketing effect they had in the 2017 campaign, but they've been gradually rising? Actually, with 2017, it was quite a gradual phenomenon, the rise of Corbyn, the relative rise of Corbyn. So I remember the Independent newspaper did these stories almost every day saying, Corbyn's picking up, Corbyn's picking up. And at one point, it seemed a bit ludicrous because there wasn't much polling evidence for it. And then in the last maybe two or three weeks, he sort of came along like a grand national horse from behind. Has it been a great week? There was a pretty bad day midweek where you had senior Labour figures, John McDonnell and John Ashworth, arguing about what the 32-hour working week actually meant. You had the bit where Corbyn was suggesting that there should be a rest made of the ISIS leader despite him having a suicide vest. And also Jeremy Corbyn being really confused about what Labour's position on a Scottish referendum is. But leaving that aside, you know, one not great day, I think the BT policy will get a lot of traction and will be quite popular with younger voters. And like you say, you know, next week will be the one to watch with the manifesto and with the debate. Boris Johnson might be a good orator in many ways, but Jeremy Corbyn likes campaigning. He thrives in it. He might look a little bit more energised than we've been seeing him in recent months. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Jim, Laura, Robert and Miranda for joining. In the meantime, if you'd like yet more election coverage, then you should check out more FT Journalism through our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Election Countdown was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Owen McSweeney. We'll be back in the middle of next week for your update on the election campaign and back next Saturday for your full episode. Until next time, thanks for listening. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.